Welcome back everybody to the Uncensored CMO. Now let me ask you a question. Did you set yourself a New Year's resolution for 2023? Interestingly, when I thought about it myself, rather than setting a new goal, I decided that I don't actually need a new goal. I, I could very easily articulate what it is I want to achieve. In fact, I also know how I think I can achieve those goals. The question isn't, do I have a clear goal or do I know, do I know how to achieve it? What I found myself thinking is, how do I focus my time and effort to be as successful as possible? And a book came to mind that I read over Christmas called Indistractable by Nia Eyal. And it's absolutely brilliant because it talks about how do you control the attention and avoid distraction in your life to make sure that you deliver your goals. It's not like we want to fail, but it's about how we make sure we control all the things around us that are there to distract us and instead focus on what will make us successful or as Nia says, what will give us traction. Now, although this isn't a normal marketing topic for the podcast, I actually thought this is a really, really important thing for us to think about. How do we use the time and effort and resources that we have as people to become successful marketers? And I think this might just be a secret weapon for everybody in 2023. Hopefully you'll agree. But here's Nir Eyal and here's my conversation talking about how we become indistractable. Nia, it's so exciting that you're joining the Uncensored CMO. Welcome. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. The, the first thing I wanted to ask you, actually, and I, I was looking back at some, some of the feedback that I get in, in my career, and people have often said to me, oh, John, you're very good at networking, for example. And, and I've often I've said, well, it's a funny thing that, because actually I'm not very good at it, but I've had to work really hard to become an expert at it. So I was wondering, when you wrote this book, were you, were you the patient or were you the master? So was it something that you were naturally good at that you wanted to share with the world? Or is it something that actually you've had to learn yourself and you're sort of putting the practice into action? Oh, very much I wrote it for myself. As all my books, I always write books for problems that I myself have. And this is why I have limitless books to write in my lifetime because I have so many <laughs> problems I could potentially deal with. Because, you know, look, when, when I already know something, it's kind of boring. I don't have that spark, that flame to go learn more. So when I have a problem in my life, typically what I'll do is I'll, I'll start by journaling about it. I'll write about it. That's kind of a, I think it's a, a widely underused tool for thinking, right? If you can't think clearly, you can't write clearly and vice versa. So you really need that, that power of clarity. So most of my problems I can figure out just by journaling. If I'm still stuck, I'll talk to a good friend. I'll talk to my wife and then you know most of my problems we, we figure out together. If I'm still stuck, I'll go read books on the topic. And by and large, somebody's written a book about a problem that most of us have had before, right? There's really nothing new under the sun. Probably somebody's written a book about it. Once every five years or so, after I've exhausted all those resources, there'll be a topic that I read all the books on what the experts say is the solution. And lo and behold, I still haven't solved my problem. And that's exactly what happened with this problem of distraction is that I read all these books, many of them written by professors who have tenure, who tell us to stop using social media, stop checking email, get off your phones. Well, thanks stupid, I'll get fired if I do that. It's just not practical. And so I'm sick of taking advice from these people who have never worked in business, right? These academics who, who I greatly appreciate their, their cause, right? I, I really appreciate the research, but it's just not practical. And so what I wanted to do was to write a book that not only gives you the practical insights, but also screens out the academic research that doesn't work from the stuff that really does work to give you the holistic package. And it's changed my life in 
myriad ways. I'm in the best shape of my life physically. I used to be clinically obese, and today at 45 years old, I'm in the best shape of my life, not because I have superior genes or superior morals. It's just that I exercise and eat right because I say I will. I have a better relationship with my family than ever before because if I say I'm gonna be fully present with them, I'm not checking my phone when I'm, I'm together. I'm more productive in my work than ever before because if I say I'm gonna work on that big project, that's what I do. And so that's really why I wanted to write Indistractable is because I think the problem that we have today is not that we don't know what to do. We basically all already know what to do. If you want to get in shape, you eat right and exercise. If you want to be better at your job, you do the hard work that other people don't want to do. If you want to have better relationships, you need to be fully present with people. We know this stuff. And frankly, if you don't know, Google it, right? You've got the world's information at your fingertips. The problem is that we is not that we don't know what to do. The problem is we yeah. don't know how to stop getting in our own way. We don't know how to stop getting distracted. But when we do discover that power, when we learn how to be indistractable, I think this is the skill of the century. And that's the skill I most wanted in my own life. And, and I can't tell you how many ways it's affected my life for the better. Yeah, it resonates so much with me. That, that's why I said to you just before we came on out, it's, it's the first book I wanted to read this year. Because as I was reflecting on the year and, and the business I'm in and the work I do, I've got no shortage of ideas. In fact, mm. I've got no shortage of knowing how to make those ideas a reality. But the one thing that was stopping me is just you know making it happen. And, and that's, and that's right. where I thought actually the biggest hack I can you know, do for myself this year is, is actually managing my own time and my own energy and, and actually making the things happen that I say. I'm, I'm almost bored of myself you know, kind of coming up with another good idea. I'm like, come on, right, the time for talk is yeah. well and truly over. So it's time to, time to put it into action. So, so Nir, thank you so much. It's really good to have you on. Just a couple of sort of fun questions before we you know, dive into the, the psychology behind it and the advice that you give and that sort of thing. How does it feel to be an author when you see your book out in the wild. I mean, I've traveled a lot for business and I, I often see your book, of course, bright yellow as well, which is, it's very hard to miss. Just, to, just as an author, what's the feeling like when you, do, do, you, do you hang out at the, in the bookshop and you know watch people browse it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I just sit there behind the bookshelf and I say, don't you want to try that book? You, that, that's a really good book. Yeah, you should yeah. really read that book, right? And I jump out at you and make you buy my book. No, it's, 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 it's wonderful to see, but you know, book publishing is a, a very fickle beast because I think I, I saw a recent statistic that something like 90% of books never sell more than 5,000 copies and more books are published today than ever before. So I feel super fortunate. You know, my books have topped over a million copies and I get emails every single day from people who tell me how the books, one of the books or the other has changed their life. And it, that's incredibly rewarding. But I, I will tell you, I try and not measure myself by that I uh, because who knows how long it's going to last, right? Who knows tastes, you know, people, but uh, frankly, I didn't write the book for my readers. And I know that sounds bad. I wrote the book for me because I had a problem that I wanted to figure out for myself. And I figured, look, if I write this book and I figure this out for myself, it can't be a failure because at least I will have written something that I myself need to exist. And whether other people benefit from it or not, that's great, that's icing on the cake, but fundamentally I needed to figure out this problem. And so that's, that to me is the, is the biggest reward. That makes a lot of sense. And I noticed actually both your books are yellow and, and it, it did make me smile as well because I chose yellow for the podcast branding that I use for Uncensored CMO. And I, I've no idea the logic that you use when coming up with it. But for me, it was inspired by the highlighter pen. And so I wanted to pick mm. the color that was going to 
jump out and just stand out against the background. Your book very, very much me has the same impact when I'm sat there in the, the bookshop. Have I made that up or is that, you know, any kind of thought process you had? No, no, no. That was very, very intentional. You know, I'm all about behavioral design. That's, that's my profession. I help companies design the kind of products and services that people use because they want to, not because they have to. And so I'm a specialist in user retention and habit formation. And so I understand, you know, what, what colors get attention. And there is a, an incremental impact to the color yellow. I mean, this is why you see caution signs. If you're driving on the highway, the signs that tell you the street names are in green, right? The stop signs are in red, but the caution signs, the hazard signs are always in yellow. And that's because yellow is the most Uh eye-catching color. Oh, good. I'm really happy there's some science behind the madness of me putting yellow as my podcast covers. There we go. Let's uh, let's jump into the book because it's brilliant. And and thank you for writing it. Maybe let's start with what what drives distraction for for us in the first place? Great question. So let's start with with the word itself. I'm kind of a word nerd. And so I like to look at the entomology of different words. And, And so when you look at the word distraction, it's a word that I thought I understood, but really I didn't. And the best way to test yourself if you know the, what the word means is to ask yourself, what is the antonym of that word? What is the opposite of distraction? If you ask most people, what is the opposite of distraction? They'll tell you focus. But that's not exactly right. That if you look at the origin of the word distraction, the opposite is not focus. The opposite of distraction is traction, right? Traction and distraction. Both words come from the same Latin root, trahare, which means to pull, and they both end in the same six letters, A-C-A-T-I-O-N, that spells action, reminding us that distraction is not something that happens to us, but rather it is an action that we ourselves take. So traction, by definition, is any action that pulls you towards what you said you were going to do, things that you do with intent, things that move you closer to your values and help you become the kind of person you wanna become. Those are acts of traction. The opposite of traction, of course, Distraction is any action that pulls you away from what you plan to do, away from your goals, away from becoming the kind of person you want to become. Those are acts of distraction. Now, what separates traction and distraction is one word, and that one word is intent. As Dorothy Parker said, the time you plan to waste is not wasted time. So I'm very much against this silly narrative that we should moralize and medicalize all these behaviors that people think are new and hijacking your brain, right? Technology and social media, it's stealing your focus and it's hijacking your attention. Rubbish, ridiculous, okay? We're not, our focus isn't being stolen. We're giving it away. We are doing it, okay? And frankly, if you want to do these things, if you wanna go on social media, if you wanna play video games, if you wanna watch Netflix, do it. Why is playing a video game somehow morally reprehensible but watching a football match on TV is okay? Silly. Mm -hmm. Anything you wanna do with your time and attention is great, do it, it makes life worth living, enjoy it. But do it on your schedule, not someone else's, certainly not the tech companies, okay? So anything you decide to do in advance is traction. Conversely, anything that is not what you said you would do in advance is distraction. And here's the interesting thing, anything can be distraction. I'll give you an example. So for years, I would sit down at my desk And I would say, okay, I've got my to-do list. And by the way, we can get back to this in a minute about why to-do lists I discovered in my research are one of the worst things you can do for your personal productivity. We can get back to that in a minute. But I would sit down at my desk and I would say, okay, here's the thing I need to do today. I gotta make those sales calls or I gotta write that blog post or I gotta work on that big presentation. I gotta do that. That's the most important thing. Okay, so here I go. That's what I plan to do. I'm gonna get started on it right now. But first, let me check some email, right? 
Let me just check that Slack channel real quick. Let me just do a few things here. Uh, let me just do a few tasks on my to-do list just to get started. Those, those are all work-related tasks. Those, those are all things I got to do at some point, right? Well, I didn't realize that that is the most dangerous, most pernicious form of distraction, the distraction that tricks you into prioritizing the easy and the urgent work at the expense of the hard and important work you've got to do to move your life and career forward. So just because something is a work-related task doesn't mean it's not a distraction. In fact, that's the most terrible kind of distraction because you don't even realize it's happening to you in the moment. So just because it's a work-related task doesn't mean it's not a distraction. That's the distraction you should look out for, much more than social media or video games or any of the other things that people think are distractions. So now we've got traction, we've got distraction. What prompts us to take these actions? Here we've got the triggers. We've got external triggers and internal triggers leading us towards traction and distraction. External triggers are the usual suspects, right? These are all the pings, the dings, the rings, anything in our outside environment that can lead us towards traction or distraction. These are what people think of all the time. You know, my phone, the, the, all these pings, dings, and rings, these things outside of me. But it turns out, studies find, that those only account for 10% of our distractions. 10% of our distractions wow. come from outside of us. 90%, and studies have shown this, this isn't just my work, this is, yeah. we, we have studies that validate this, that do time studies on how people, why people are distracted. 90% of the time we get distracted, it's not because of what's happening outside of us, but rather what is happening inside of us. These are called internal triggers. What are internal triggers? Internal triggers are uncomfortable emotional states that we seek to escape. Boredom loneliness, fatigue, uncertainty, anxiety, stress. These are these uncomfortable emotions that we seek to escape with a distraction. So now we have the four points of our compass. The first step is to master these internal triggers. Let me tell you, if you don't understand the hidden reason, the real psychological itch that drives you to distraction, I don't care if it's too much news, too much booze, too much Facebook, too much football, you are always gonna define distraction in one place or another. If you don't master that internal trigger, it will become your master. So that's step number one. Step number two is make time for traction. You cannot say you got distracted unless you know what it distracted you from. So unless you're a child or retired, if you want to do what you say you're going to do, you have to be explicit on when you are going to do it. It's no longer optional. You have to plan your time. If you don't, somebody or something is gonna plan it for you. So you've got to be explicit about how you're gonna spend your time because if you don't, if you have big white space on your calendar, what exactly did you get distracted from? You didn't plan your time, okay? And this is why we can get back to why to-do lists are such a terrible technique and why they tend to make people worse off. We can get back to why this is such a better technique a, a little later. The third step now is to hack back the external triggers. We talked about earlier those pings, dings, and rings. Even though they only account for about 10% of our distractions, this is kindergarten stuff, right? I tell you in a few pages how to turn your device into an indistractable device. That's easy. The harder stuff is what about the pointless meetings? that are nothing more than a distraction, where people call these stupid meetings on Zoom just to hear themselves talk out loud. Nothing but distractions, most of them, the vast majority, 80% are nothing but distractions. What about our kids? We love them to death, but if you're working from home, kids can be a huge source of distraction. What do we do about that? Well, I show you systematically, one at a time, how to hack back all these external triggers. And then finally, the fourth and final step is to prevent distraction with pacts. And this is where we use this technique called a pre-commitment device to build a firewall against distraction. And so these are the four big strategies that in concert can help anyone become indistractable.
So that's kind of the 30,000 foot summary of the book. Thank you. That's brilliant. And and, and let's go through those. The the thing that stood out when you talked there was 90% of our distraction being internal. I'm guessing, but if I I was to do a poll, I'm sure most people would say 90% is external. You'd go, oh, it was the, it was the, it was the doorbell going, it was my kids. You know, mm-hmm. so that psychologically, that's quite interesting, isn't it? Is that we're sort of blaming external factors mostly for our lack of productivity rather than taking ownership for it. I want to start with may, maybe a, an assumption that I probably made that was wrong. So surely, isn't it just down to our willpower? Isn't it just down to saying no and and, and using our own willpower? Because I was fascinated reading your book, actually, that you know, willpower is not, you know, it's not this sort of depleting resource that we think it is, that we, as long as we've got enough willpower, we'll do it. That a lot of it right. is down to how we think, isn't it? And how, you know, it's almost like an energy level that we need to keep topped up. Explain a bit more about that, because I think that, that, that seems to have a lot of the answer to the internal behavioral challenge that you talk about. Yeah, so so willpower is a is a very controversial topic that you know we well, a few years ago there was a researcher who got a lot of mainstream attention for publicizing this idea that willpower is a depletable resource. It was called ego depletion in the in the academic literature, and the idea was that you run out of willpower like you would run out of gas in a gas tank or battery charge on your phone that you have less and less of it. And many people kind of. In, inherently believe this notion. I, you know, I used to. I used to come home from work on a hard day, and I'd say, "Oh, I'm so spent. I have no more willpower. Give me that Ben and Jerry's. Give me that ice cream. I, I'm going to sit on the couch and just watch TV because I'm spent." Quote unquote. Right. I have no willpower left. I deserve it. And you see a lot of advertising actually, you know, use this type of psychology that you, you know, you deserve it. You owe this to yourself. You know, you, you, you've earned it kind of thing that your willpower defenses are gone because you've done so much stuff in another area of your life. And this got a lot of mainstream attention. But as is the case in the psychology literature, when something sounds a little funny, right, when it, when, when it smells fishy, what do we do? We don't take it as gospel. We rerun the studies. And these same studies have been run again and again, and it turns out in these, in these meta-analyses where we look at many of these studies, it turns out that there is no such thing. That to the best of our knowledge, ego depletion doesn't really exist. That willpower is not a depletable resource, except, except in one group of people. And so this came out of a research study done by Carol Dweck, who you, you probably read her fantastic yeah, book yeah. called Mindset. She did this study that showed essentially that there is one group of people who really do run out of willpower. And those people, and only those people, are people who believe that their willpower is a depletable resource. And it goes back to what Henry Ford says said over 100 years ago, that whether you believe you can or you cannot, you're right. And, and this is the big problem of our age. We love this victim mentality. And I'm not saying people aren't victims. There are many people who are victims, but it doesn't serve you to think you're a victim. If you buy this ridiculous narrative that we hear these days, that our attention is being uh, hijacked, that our focus is being stolen, if you buy this stupid narrative, what do you do about it? Nothing, nothing. When you tell people, you know, your brain is being hijacked, and this is what a lot of these tech critics say these days, and your and your focus is being stolen. Well, I can't do anything about that, right? I'm powerless. And it leads to what we call an external locus of control. We know that an external locus of control versus an internal locus of control, people who believe that they do have agency, they do have power, they do have control, these people are better off 
in every conceivable metric. They live longer, they have more friends, they're happier, they make more money. People who believe in an internal versus an external locus of control. So what I wanna do, my, my book is not for people with an external locus of control. My book is for the people who wanna know what do I do? We all know that these things are distracting. We all know that email and social media and television, of course these things distract us. Duh, that's what they're built to do. Are we gonna say, hey, Netflix, your shows are very interesting. Can you please make them more boring? Are we gonna tell, hey, yeah. Apple, your, your phones are so user-friendly, I wanna use it all the time. Can, can you please stop that? No, that's not a problem, that's yeah. progress. We want these things to be engaging. So it's yeah. up to us. We have to do something about it. And so that's who I'm writing this for, the kind of person who says, yeah, I want the tools, I want the technologies, they're great, but how can I make sure that I use them versus letting them use me? One of my first reactions reading the book was thinking, oh, well, I'm creative and, you know, I work better mm. with, you know, an open diary. And, and, and it's almost, so what, to what extent do the stories we tell about ourselves or the way that we describe ourselves it, it impact on our ability to, you know, to, to not be distracted? Because I think there's a lot of it because I know, you know, I, I, th I think of myself as creative. I'm not particularly organized. Right. Therefore, I'm going to find this difficult. And I think that's part of the problem, isn't it? Is that actually the, the stories totally. we tell ourselves end up, you know, you know, becoming reality for us, don't they? Huge. And so just like what we were saying earlier about people who believe that their willpower is limited resource, they act accordingly. It's the same yeah. way with people who say, oh, I'm a creative. And that's, and that's fine. Look, if you're a child or retired, fine. I'll, I'll go even further. If you are living the life that you think is best for you, don't listen to this, okay? This isn't for you. My book is not for you. I'm writing for who I used to be, the kind of person yeah. who I knew I was capable of more. I was overweight, but I knew that I didn't have to be. I wasn't productive at work, though I knew I could do better. I had something to say and I wanna get it out there. I knew I could be a better father if I just stopped constantly being distracted by everything going on around me and just focused on being with my daughter. I knew I had the potential in me, but I wasn't living up to my full potential. And so if that's you, start with this reason that something has to change, right? You, to, to expect the, the same results by doing the same thing, right? That's the definition of insanity. You've got to change something. And so what we have to change is this starting with, I think as you eloquently said, starting with our identity. That many people use this excuse that, oh, I need to be spontaneous because I'm creative. I need to act whenever the muse strikes. That's bullshit. Okay, you know when creativity strikes, you know when the muse comes and visits you, when you put your butt in the chair and do the work. And if you don't schedule that time, and I can't take credit for this idea, I think Stephen Pressfield, if you don't know The War of Art, it's a fantastic book, where he talks about how do you become a professional? And if you don't wanna be professional, that, that's fine, right? If you say, hey, I wanna do what I wanna do, great, retire, go to the beach and do whatever you want. But if you say, look, I can achieve more, I can make my life better, but I'm not, this is why. This is why, yeah. because you're labeling, I'm not saying you specifically, of course, I'm saying to, to the listener, <laughs> and, and to myself, frankly, right? That I thought, yeah. oh, you know, that it'll just, inspiration will come to me. Well, inspiration comes nine to five when I'm sitting here doing the work. The problem is, oh, let me just do a little bit of this and a little bit of that. Let me check email, let me Google this. Oh, do you see what happened in the news? What about Twitter? Oh, my kid needs that, let's do the laundry. All these things got in the way of me doing my best work. Right, so now I still do all that stuff, by the way. I haven't actually cut any of the fun stuff out of my life, but I do it when I say I will. And therefore that allows me to make sure that I live out my values as opposed to before I was living out other people's values. 
Mm. Do you know what? That, that, that was one of the most profound things that struck me about the book. If we jump into the, you know, how we create time for traction part, which is brilliant. Mm-hmm. And I noticed you start that with with you as the individual, then relationships, then work. Now, again, right. back to the, I think 90% of people manage their time based on what's expected at work. Then there might be time for relationships. Then maybe there's time for themselves sort of thing. And actually I was quite struck by it because you, you totally invert that. You know, you start right. with you. You know, what, you know, what's your goal? What, what are your values? What you know, what are you trying to achieve? And that that was quite profound because I think you know, even someone myself who's in a relatively responsible job who has a relative amount of degree of power and you know, decision making influence, I still find so much of my time is dictated by other people's agendas, by mm. the systems and processes that the business has put in around me, and so on. So, just talk to me about that because I, I thought that was almost the key to this entire thing is how, you know, starting with yourself first and, and and then working out from there. Right, right. So th- this, so step number one is making sure that you can master the internal triggers. That's the most important step because if you don't, these emotions will, will take you off track. They'll lead you towards distraction. There's a do- dozen different techniques you can use to make sure that you can master these internal triggers. The second step is to make time for traction. And how do you do that? You turn your values into time. Turn your values into time. If you want to know what someone's values are, you don't listen to the words coming out of their mouth. You look at their calendar and you look at their checkbook. That's how you know what someone's actual values are, how they spend their time and how they spend their money. And it's funny to me how we are so cheap with our money, right? People will clip coupons. They won't buy things unless they're on sale. They'll split checks when they go out to lunch with a friend. They do all these things to save money. But with our time, just give it away. Whoever wants whatever, yeah, sure, just give it away. And that's ridiculous. It should be exactly the opposite. Why? Because you can always make more money. You can always make more money, right? But I don't care how rich you are. You can be Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk or Bill Gates. You cannot make more time. So we need to be stingy with our time, but generous with our money. And I think most people have that the opposite way around. So how do we become stingy with our time? We have to ask ourselves, what are our values? Well, let's start with what are values in general? What's the definition of values? To me, values are attributes of the person you want to become. I'll say that again. Values are attributes of the person you want to become. There are things that, that cannot be taken away from you, okay? Now, to live out those values, you have to put them in your calendar. You have to schedule time for them, okay? How do we do that? We start with these three life domains. The first life domain is you. You are at the center of these three life domains. Why? Because if you can't take care of yourself, can't take care of other people, you can't make the world a better place. So what does that look like? You take a look at your calendar the week ahead and you ask yourself, how would the person I want to become spend their time? How can I turn my values into time? And what does that look like? Well, for me, and I'm not saying it needs to be for everyone, one of my key values is personal health, okay? So for me, and again, it doesn't have to be for everyone, some amount of physical exercise is very important. Okay, I wanna be around to see my grandkids. I wanna be here for my wife. I I wanna live life for as long as I possibly can, which means I need to exercise. I need to sleep, right? And I I used to tell this to my daughter all the time, right? You need a bedtime. We tell our children, you need a bedtime. But I was a goddamn hypocrite. Because <laughs> I didn't have a bedtime. Well, we know that sleep yeah. is important for everyone. Why didn't? Why don't adults have bedtimes? We need yeah. that bedtime. So in my schedule, there is time for exercise. There is time for working out. There's time for uh, there's time for sleep. There's also time for fun things. Right? I have time in my calendar to go on social media every day. 
because I like social media. It's part of my values to be accessible to my audience, right? I have time for reading. I have time for, for all the things that are important to take care of myself. It's in my schedule. The next life domain is relationships. And this is really why we have a loneliness epidemic in the industrialized world these days. And we know that loneliness is as detrimental to our health as smoking and obesity. And so we need to take this problem very seriously. The reason this problem is happening, more so with men than women is what the statistics are telling us, hmm. is that the regular occasions for people to interact with each other are off our calendars. It used to be that for our parents and grandparents, Wednesday night was the Kiwanis Club. Thursday night was bowling league. Saturday was church group. There were these clear times in our schedule when we would interact with other people. That's gone, okay? Especially with COVID, that decimated. Oh, COVID, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the time on our calendar when we could see other people. So put time in your calendars for in your calendar for the relationships that matter. Whether it's your friends, whether it's your family, don't give them whatever scraps of time are left over put it in your schedule. So one thing I do with my best friend, so I have three best friends that I, I, I've known for almost my whole life. And for years we would kind of, oh, it's been a long time, I haven't seen you, what's going on? And then we would drift apart slowly, slowly. You know, relationships don't die, they starve to death. And that's exactly what happened. So what did I do after I did this line of research? I have with my three best friends, time on our calendar every month that time is booked from now to infinity, okay? Every third Tuesday of the month is my call with Travis, and then every second Monday is my call with, with Zach. I've got that time in my schedule already. We don't have to book the time and, and figure out when our schedules allow it, it's already there. I do the same with my daughter, I do the same with my wife, I do this with all my relationships, right? But the people who I really care about in my life. Finally, the last life domain is your work. And as you said, this is where people tend to start, mm. but I think it's actually the last life domain. And here we need to separate our work into two kinds of work. We have what's called reactive work, which is the kind of work where we're reacting to things, right? Reacting to emails, reacting to notifications, reacting to phone calls, reacting to colleagues. That's reactive work. And that's part of everybody's day. The problem with reactive work is that people get habituated to stay in reactive work because it's very comfortable to avoid uncertainty. What does that uncertainty look like? This uncertainty around what am I supposed to be doing right now? What's the most important thing? That's a hard question for people to answer. And oftentimes it's an uncomfortable question for people to answer. Mm. So instead of actually having to think about, am I running in the right direction? No, no, I'll just run real fast in the wrong direction. Just tell me what to do. Oh, I don't know what to do. Let me check email. How stupid is that? I used to do that all the time. I'm not sure what to do right now. Let me check email because my email yeah. inbox will tell me what to do next. So dumb. That should mm. not be what to do next. Your colleagues, the pings and dings, the Slack messages, that should not be your daily agenda. Your calendar, your schedule should be your daily agenda. So that means you have to not only plan time for the reactive work, that needs to be in your schedule as well. Of course, it's part of our job, but reflective work needs to be in your schedule. Reflective work is the kind of work that can only be done without distraction, the thinking, the planning, the strategizing, the creative work can only be done without distraction. And so that has to be planned ahead. And it's okay if it's only 15, 20 minutes, maybe it's an hour, an hour and a half. You've got to have that time in your schedule or I promise you, you're gonna run real fast in the wrong direction. So those are those three life domains. That's how we fill up our calendar for the week. And the reason this is so much better than the to-do list method is that to-do lists have no constraints. You can always mm. add more to your to-do list. A calendar has a constraint. We all have the same 24 hours in a day. So what it makes you do, it forces you to prioritize your values, to ask yourself, in the limited time I have today, 
which of course, if you extrapolate the limited time I have on this planet, how do I wanna use that time to live out my values? So, okay, t television's great, social media's great, work is great, all these things are great, but is that how I wanna spend my time? What's the right proportion so that I can be the kind of person that I know I can become? The, 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 the revelation for me there was, I think when I started reading the book, I was thinking, I'm going to have less fun. I'm not going to be as spontaneous. I'm not going to have time for creativity. That was my assumption. But actually, the perverse thing about it is actually you create more time for those things because totally they're planned. True. You know, like you're saying, catching up with your relationships and, and your friends and, and, and being spontaneous. So it, it feels, doesn't it, when you're planning it, oh dear, you know, I'm, I'm kind of having to plan being, you know, being spontaneous, being fun, creative, all that sort of thing. But yeah, actually yeah. you end up doing more of it. And I know when I've started to do this, I've suddenly, I've suddenly made so much more progress because I've got dedicated time where I can come up with the idea. I can write down the, you know, the the, the paper I was thinking of writing, or, or the, mm. or bring to life the the social media posts. And the other thing as well that, that that struck me is, you know, being on social media, watching a film, they're not bad things. I mean, you, you, I, I guess the sort of, you know, the classic sort of time management thing would would make those things a distraction and bad. They're not bad as long yeah. as you know when they're being done and you know what the purpose is and sort of thing. And that was a revelation right. for me. I think it really changed my the way I thought about it rather than going, oh, geez, you know, if I plan everything, where's the fun? <laughs> you know? right, Whereas right. actually, I'm I mean, going to have more fun. You know? Totally. I mean, this is what I call the tyranny of the to-do list because so many people don't know what actual leisure feels like. The problem with to-do lists, and by the way, I'm not against writing things down, okay? It's great to get things out of our brain and write them on a piece of paper and in an app. That's great. But if you're not putting them in your schedule, here's what happens. You get home at from work at the end of the day and you look at your to-do list and you still have a million things you haven't done, even though you feel like mm. you've worked real hard all day, okay? So what does that do to your psyche? What does that do to your self-image if day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, you don't keep promises to yourself, loser? So you begin to believe that, you know, this ridiculous stuff that we hear people saying, I'm no good at time management, or I have a short attention span, or whatever it is, the people start thinking that they're somehow broken. Well, you're not broken. It's a stupid time management yeah. technique that we've been using yeah. that's broken. And the, the real problem is when you finally do give yourself some leisure time, okay, I'm going to play with my kids. I'm going to watch some television. I'm going to go on social media. The tyranny of the to-do list is when, even when you're trying to enjoy yourself, you're thinking about all the things you still haven't done, right? That's the tyranny of the to-do list, as opposed to when I now as a person who's indistractable, when I have time in my calendar to play with my kid or go on social media or watch a movie, that now is traction. That's exactly what I should be doing right now. And anything mm -hmm. else is a distraction. The other thing on top of that that I, I, I notice as well, starting to put this into practice, is when you commit to people to do, do something and you don't do it because you're not, you know, you, you're distracted, that person loses a bit of trust in you. Mm, so you also find also the impact true. on relationships, yeah. you know, in terms of customers or or colleagues. And the next time you come up with an idea, they go, well, last time we talked about the idea, <laughs> nothing happened. You know, I'm not quite sure it's going to happen this time. And you get that sinking feeling thinking, oh, geez, you know, I've let this person down. You know, I've not been the person I want to be. So it affects, doesn't it? You know, not just you, but your relationships and, and, and you know, business outcomes as well. Let's talk about some of those external triggers as well. Mm. One that drives me insane is just the, the, the amount of, there's, I, I don't know if you, you come across this, but JIRA, in the business I work in, we have this, mm -hmm. this system, JIRA. And the idea being is that, you know, if, if you want finance to do something for you or you want IT to do something for you, you go in and you upload your request. And it occurred to me that, it's incredibly productive 
for the t for the department that have created it but what they're doing is they're sort of pushing their admin onto everybody else so that you're then but basically what you what, what i worked out the other day is i think with the guy that runs our it we have we've got 15 different productivity systems in the organization mm. and oh, he damn. thought that was that was good because it was only 15. we're on on 15 different systems or different ways of messaging or communicating or keeping track of projects and it and it, it's making somebody's life easier, but it's making everyone else's life more complicated. And the other thing, of course, with that is that then how do you get one common currency or denominator or way of doing things? So what is one person's efficiency is someone else's distraction, isn't it? So mm. I, I, and there's a lot in that question, I know. But how do you get to a point with these external triggers as a team whereby you're working in the same kind of way because that feels like the battle to you know otherwise you know what is good for Nia might not be good for John might not be good for Bob and so on right right so I, I I give two pieces of advice so the first and this comes from Jason Freed who is the founder of Basecamp which is a, a similar tool to Jira and Slack and he tells us these products should be thought of like a like a hot tub okay in a hot tub you get in and you get out. You don't sit in a hot tub all day because your fingers become all gross and pruney and eventually you'll die, right? So you don't sit in it all day. And this is the big mistake that most people make. They open Slack, they open Jira, they open whatever tool, and they just let it sit there all day pinging and dinging them. And then they wonder why they didn't get very much done because you can't concentrate. <laughs> You're constantly distracted. And you say, oh yes, but I, I need to be available. My team needs me, bullshit. Bullshit, hmm. okay? What's happening is your fear that your team needs you. It's not actual. And I'm not hmm. saying go offline for the entire day and work from a cave. No, I'm saying, can you give yourself 30 minutes? Can you work in 30 minute sprints of time where you do nothing but the task that you said you're going to work on and you turn all that other stuff off? Of course your team can wait 30 minutes. They're not gonna slack you or, or DM you if something is urgent. They're gonna call you. They're gonna come to your desk. They're gonna you know find a different medium for something that's really a crisis. If it's not a crisis, it can wait 30 minutes. By and large, every time I hear people say, yeah, but my team needs me, my clients this, we're in the customer service business, I get it. I've heard every excuse in the book. That's why I wrote the book. Clients can wait, customers can wait, your, your, your team can wait, small increments of time, 30 minutes even, you'll get back to them. So the problem is you don't leave it open all day, you don't respond to every ping ding or ring because now you're indistractable. You make time in your day to say, okay, you know what? I check Slack at this time of the day and then I'm in and then I'm out. The second big yeah. piece of advice is to do what's called a schedule sync. A schedule sync is when you have one of these time box calendars, when you make a time box calendar for yourself and you plan the time for reactive work as well as reflective work, now you have a physical artifact, okay? You have something that you can print out, that you can share with people. And so what I encourage people to do is to sit down with your boss on Monday morning and say, boss, you know what? I just need 15 minutes of your time. I wanna show you my schedule for the week, okay? Not your to-do list, your schedule for the week. And what you do is you show your boss this schedule of here's how I plan to spend all my hours at work. And here's this list of things I couldn't fit in my calendar. And now you are overcoming one of the worst pieces of productivity advice that we've all been told ad nauseum. The worst piece of productivity advice out there is if you want to be more focused, you have to learn how to say no. Just say no. What kind of Stupid advice. That's the kind of advice that only an academic could give you, right? Somebody who's never had a real job. Because you know what you, you, it's going to happen if you tell your boss no? No, thanks, boss. I don't really want to do that. You're going to get fired. 
So you don't tell your boss no. You tell your boss, can you help me prioritize? Okay, that is your boss's number one job. If you show them your schedule, they will worship the ground you walk on. Anybody in management will tell you, they are constantly thinking to themselves, what exactly are my people doing right now? I know I've given them a bunch of work, but what are they doing? So this is how you manage up. This is how you manage your manager. You don't make them micromanage you. Micromanage, you know, managers will micromanage their, their employees when they're not doing this. So you wanna be proactive. You take to them every week, your, your time box calendar. You say, this is what I'm planning to do this week. Here's the stuff I don't know how to put in my calendar. Can you help me reprioritize? And what you're asking them to do is to then say, okay, you know what? That meeting that's on your schedule, that's nice, but you really don't need to be there. But that other thing that's on this piece of paper, I want you to do that. That's super important. Can you work on that for a few hours? And so you're involving them in this process of helping them help you make this time box calendar according to what's most important for the business objectives. And then here's the beauty of it. They're not interrupting you anymore because you went over the calendar and you showed them, this is my time when I'm gonna be indistractable. You put it in the calendar. Don't interrupt me from this hour to this hour because that's when I need to be heads down working on this big project that requires my full focus and attention. Neil, I think that's genius. That is such good advice because as well, like then, then you've got air cover from your boss because you know, exactly. like you, you know, you're, in fact, your boss is now accountable, right? You've asked them to prioritize your time. You've also made sure that you've got more time to deliver the things that are important to them. I think right. that's such brilliant. One of the things I think we have to face into as well is, you know, we were talking about the need to be responsive immediately. And mm. I think there's two parts to that because I think both as an individual, we feel, we feel good, don't we, when we respond immediately. Ah, right. I, you know, my boss is going to think I'm brilliant because I was the first person in the thread to reply. And also, you know, we talk about people that respond immediately as being always on it. They're always on it, aren't they? And that sort of thing. But actually, they're always on the reactive but they're not on the practice. And this is this, this is something that you know frustrates me in the job that I do is that um, sometimes by choosing not to do things, you can make the proactive, really important things happen, mm. which mm. are far more game changing than the reactive things that could have waited, that didn't need to be done now. And I think breaking that paradigm is so important because we've got to value the people in business that go, I'm not gonna do that straight away because I'm gonna do the thing that is more important that at the end of the day is gonna help us achieve our goal. Because otherwise we'll be very busy and achieve nothing because we'll be competing with each other to get who can be more reactive, who can be on Slack, right. you know, the longest number of hours in the day. You know, it's, right. it, it's kind of a full goal in, in a way. You're, you're absolutely right. But I will say there is a limit to what you can do as an individual. And we need to be very honest about this. So you can do everything I tell you in Indistractable and you can become Indistractable yourself. You can learn these four strategies we talked about earlier. You can do the schedule sync with your boss, but there comes a point where this is a cultural dysfunction. So there's a whole chapter in the book about how to build an Indistractable workplace. And the, the big takeaway is that distraction in the workplace is a symptom of dysfunction. Because what we find is if employees can't raise their hand and say, you know, I'm really finding that I'm not doing my best work because I'm constantly expected to respond all the time. Can we do something about this problem? If you're embarrassed to bring up this problem, if you think that there's gonna be retribution, if you think you're gonna be thought less of in your organization, that you can't talk about this problem, that is the problem. The problem is not your technology. (laughs) The problem is not the tools. The problem is a screwed up company culture 
that doesn't understand how to get the best out of its people. And so sometimes this is a cultural level problem. And so sometimes, rarely, but sometimes the problem is to not work at this type of toxic environment. In fact, I talk about two companies in the book. One is BCG, Boston Consulting Group, which I used to work at. It was my first job out of college, actually. And this was, you know, 20 years ago. But let me tell you, it was an awful culture. Right, you were always expected to be on call. You, we, back then, we didn't have iPhones. We had these Blackberries, and we were constantly. I, mean, I remember that that buzz still gives me a pit in my stomach. Yeah, and and people <laughs> were dropping like flies because it was just an unsustainable culture. Today, BCG is rated as one of America's best places to work, and they've had a complete 180. And and I document how they did this by changing completely how they have become an indistractable company. The other company I document is Slack, which is really ironic because they make this software that so many people complain is so distracting. So I actually went to Slack and I was expecting, look, nobody uses Slack more than Slack. Therefore, if the technology is the problem, they should be the most distracted people on earth. That's not what I found. Because when you walk into Slack headquarters, there's a big sign in the company canteen that says work hard and go home. It's in bright pink neon letters. It's like 10 feet wide, you can't miss it. Because everybody in the company believes that to get our best work, we have to let people work without distraction. So, so I talk about there's these three attributes of the kind of company that can become indistractable. And so if you're in a man- management position, yeah, it's your responsibility. And I think there's a lot you can do to get more out of your people by having this culture of becoming indistractable, starting with, by the way, being a good example. Right, so I, this is the same advice I give to business leaders as I give to parents, is we have to stop being hypocrites, okay? If you're telling your kids, stop playing on Fortnite while you're checking email. If you as the big boss are you know, telling people you need to be more focused, less distracted, and meanwhile, you know, you're, you're the big boss that needs to show how important people are and you're using your device in the middle of meetings, well, you're sending a very clear message, okay? So we have to stop being hypocrites. And that's what we find at these indistractable companies is that they are led by people who believe in the power of focus, who believe that the skill of the century that they want to impart to their people is the power of being indistractable. Let's talk briefly about meetings as well. It's, it's funny, when, when you were talking earlier about Slack, you know, I've been on so many meetings where you can see people have got a second screen running and you can even see this chat going on yeah. but, you know, of people in the meeting while the meeting's happening and they're on a second screen. How should we approach meetings? Because I think you know, if, if you were to ask anybody, what's your biggest distraction from getting your job done? I think meetings pretty much comes right at the top of the list, doesn't it? In totally. terms of, well, totally. if only we didn't have so many meetings, you know, I could do a great job sort of thing. What should yeah. our approach to meetings be? Okay, so when you see this type of behavior, when you see people on chat, when you see people who are clearly checked out and doing something else during a meeting, that is not the root cause of the problem, that is the symptom of the problem. Okay, just like you know, if you have a runny nose, that's not the disease, the disease is you have COVID or the flu, that's what caused the runny nose. So you should take that, if you're in business meetings where you see this happening, that is telling you that that meeting is not being properly run. I'll tell you two things that you can do to stop this from happening. Okay, number one, and I almost feel embarrassed saying this, but I have to, no agenda, no meeting. Did you know that 80% of business meetings, 80%, I actually think it's higher, but that's what the statistics say, 80% of meetings today in corporate America don't have a goddamn agenda. I mean, I learned this in my high school student council group. You have to have an agenda. And what's happening is it's become so easy to call a meeting. You know, pre-COVID, before everybody was on Zoom, it was actually more difficult to call a meeting. At least we had to be geographically in the same place. Yeah. Well, today, yeah. I can all I have to do is send out a meeting invite and now it's on your calendar and now we have to have this meeting. So this is part of the company culture where if you, we have to add back this friction 
you know, that with this friction of you have to circulate an agenda before we're going to waste people's time. And it's astronomical. If you think about the hourly rate that we are wasting for these pointless meetings where people are calling these meetings, and I've been in so many of them, where the big boss calls the meeting because they're lazy. They don't feel like thinking. And this leads me to solution number two. And this is not something I invented. This is something I stole from Amazon. When you call a meeting at Amazon, you have to circulate what's called a briefing document. And a briefing document is where the person who calls the meeting does their homework and gives people a written report, not a PowerPoint presentation, not slides, a written report that concludes with the most important point of the meeting. What is a point of a meeting? The point of a meeting is not to socialize. That's a social engagement. It's not to brainstorm. Okay, like you hear people, oh, that's probably the number one reason people call pointless meetings. Oh, let's let's get together and talk this out. Listen, we know this already. Brainstorming is not done well in groups. I know this is gonna be a big shocker to people. The optimal number for a brainstorming session, you know what the optimal number for a brainstorming session is? Two people. I'm, I'm guessing it's gonna be quite low, two. Two people, that is the optimal two number people. for a brainstorming wow. session, two people. Why? Yeah. When you have a big group brainstorming, here's what happens. The highest paid, the most dominant personality, and the most male person in the group runs over the conversation. Mm. That's what happens when you've seen it a million times. Yeah. So the right way to brainstorm is to send out a question, right? Tell people, hey, look, here's the information that you need to know. I want to know your thoughts. Can you brainstorm some ideas? Maybe get together with a colleague or do it by yourself. Groups of two or less. Sometimes brainstorming is totally fine to do on your own asynchronously. And then send me your suggestions. That's how we get the opinions of the people mm -hmm. who have great ideas but aren't at the top of the, of the corporate food chain. Okay, that's the right way. Brainstorming should not happen in meetings. It should happen offline, asynchronously. The purpose of a meeting, the only purpose to have a meeting is one thing, and that is to gain consensus. How many people know that the purpose of a meeting is to gain consensus? But when you do this, you have an agenda and you have a briefing document that explains the decision we need to gain a consensus around, this will cut down on almost all of these pointless, time-wasting, distracting meetings. Oh, that makes complete sense. And it's so true, though, because almost the more important the topic or idea, the more people that then get involved, the slower it takes. And, and also, no one's quite sure who's responsible, who's taking the action, you know, who's going to who's gonna drive it through. You're right. If I look, if I look at the, the best things I've been involved in, they have been a, a small number of people. And then, of course, people complain, well, we weren't consulted and da 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 But actually, they're the things that happened, happened quickly and were successful. You're right. The more people right. involved, the slower it, it becomes and, and, and so on. Yeah. It's a great way to cover your bases, right? As the person who needs to get everyone's opinion and collect, and, and collect their thoughts and make sure that people feel heard, you put it in an email. You say, hey, look, I have this this project I'm working on and I need to make a decision and I highly value your opinion. Here's the question, here's my background research, what do you think? And then it's your job as the person who calls the meeting to collate all that research, do some thinking. By the way, this is the number one reason people call these stupid meetings that are nothing more than a waste of time yeah. is because they're lazy. They don't feel like doing the homework. We all tried to get out of doing homework when we were kids in school and this is what people do in the corporate world. They don't feel like doing the thinking. That's your job. Your job is to sit there, take in the information, and have an opinion about what should happen next. Then, 
you gain consensus with people in your team, in your organization, to bring up any maybe insights you didn't have or warnings maybe they're, that they're aware of that you don't know about. So you wanna get their opinion, but you put that in this briefing document to tell them, here's the recommendation, let's call this meeting so that I can make sure that we're all consensus, that we can commit to this point of view that I've done my homework around. That, that division between brainstorm and consensus, I think is so spot on because I've noticed recently as well where I've had some real traction is where pick one other person, almost like a sparring partner and said, right, mm. I, I need to work on our strategy for next year. I've got a starter for 10, you know, rip it apart, build on it, challenge it, or, or come up with your version without seeing mine, then we'll get to something. And then at that point, I've taken it to the group and said, there okay, you, you know, dear everybody, this is, right. this is the proposal. And usually there's one or two bits of feedback, but that's it. There's very, very little, you know, whereas I know had I started with the group, we'd still be talking about it next week, you know, and, and we'll have right. 15 different versions and, and no one's really very happy. And of course, most people are then frustrated because they've not seen the action happen. And they'd mm. rather see the action happen than, you know, than, than be debating it in, into next year. Right, right, exactly. I mean, it, it, it's, it takes more work up front but the results are way, way better in the end to do this kind of homework in advance, to make this briefing document, to gain consensus around. And then of course, you know, you have the meeting in order to say, what am I missing? That's the big question of these meetings is what am I missing? Is there something that I did wrong on my homework, so to speak? And if so, let's talk about it. And then if we all agree, let's go. But if you start the brainstorming process, you know what happens. People come up with crazy ideas, some good, some bad, some stupid, but they take ownership of them. Right. This is, this is the, what we call the commitment bias. If I tell you an idea and you don't go with it, now I feel like I was slighted. So it's much better to have people, you know, bring in the insights before, do a thorough analysis, say what you've done, do you know, show them this briefing document, and then say, okay, I've considered everyone's opinion, and here's what I think we should do next, as opposed to you know, let's yeah. talk this to death. Yeah. Brilliant. Nia, this is so, so good. In terms of what people should do next, so obviously buy the book, Indistractable. It's available pretty much everywhere. I mean, I, 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 most most bookshops I've ever been to have got it in there. You can't miss it. It's bright yellow, as is Hook, by the way. So you, you'll, you'll get both in there. But also you've made some resources available as well on your website, haven't you, that people can download and use? Absolutely. So if you go to indistractable.com, and that's spelled I-N, the word distract, A-B-L-E. So indistractable.com. There is a free workbook that we made available because we couldn't fit it in the final edition of the book. It was too long. So it's a free 80-page workbook, and you, you don't have to buy the book to get it. It's you know freely available, and that's all at indistractable.com. And my personal website, my blog, is called nearandfar.com. Near is spelled like my first name. That's N-I-R and far.com. Amazing. Nia, thank you so much. It, it, it's, it's so valuable, this. And look, thank you for writing the book. It's, it's made a massive impact on me. And I, I'm just desperate to get in and, and, and apply some of this because, like I said to you at the top, there's no shortage of ideas or know-how in terms of doing things. But boy, if you can you know, avoid the distraction and get, get, get focused and make it happen, then there's a world of difference out there. So thank you. Thank you for being generous of your time as well and coming on the show and sharing all this, this brilliant wisdom. It's, it's massively appreciated. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. So, ladies and gentlemen, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Nia about how to become indistractable. If you like what you heard and want to listen to another episode of Uncensored CMO, you can subscribe. I'm available at all major podcast outlets. And if you want to find me on Twitter, I'm at Uncensored CMO and also on LinkedIn at John Evans. I'd love to hear from you and I'd love to get a review if you want to do that. And any recommendations you've got, I'll be delighted to have them. In the meantime, I look forward to you joining me next time. Thanks for listening.